Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin A culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. Part of me wonders if we should start this episode with like some piano and like the sound of whiskey being poured into a clink, clink, clink. It's like, so have a seat. I think that'd be perfect. That's where we should start. This is a really exciting moment because we are celebrating our 100th episode. I don't know if that's particularly important, but I thought it'd be a fun time to take a step back and reflect on what have we been doing for the past four years and what have we learned? And so rather than have a normal conversation, mm. I wanted to grill you. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, let's. that sounds appropriate for an anniversary. I, I thought it'd be fun if I interviewed you. <laughs> okay. Wow. Tables have turned. Welcome to Switched on Pop. I'm songwriter Charlie Harding. I'm musicologist Nate Sloan. Nate, why did you agree to do this show with me? I agreed to do this show because... It was an opportunity to do pop music theory, which is insanely fun. Yeah. And it's something that is not best done in isolation. It's a group activity, like Twister. Yeah. It's best done with friends and strangers. <laughs> uh, so that was a bit, that was part of it. No. You know, this, the, the sociality of it, the joy of no. spending time with you, breaking down pop music. Thank you. A big part of the impetus, I think, was Carly Rae Jepsen. Right. St. Jepsen was yeah. the, the and remains the sort of holy figure watching over us. Why? I don't really actually know how that came into your life because it really was your insight. Right. So we, so the idea for the show was after I'd used Call Me Maybe in the classroom to talk about how music theory works in pop songs. And then we were talking about it and we and and i think you were like this is a podcast right yeah we had cereal in our ears not like you know frosted flakes <laughs> no we didn't not lucky charms the podcast cereal it had we, just come out it yeah, had just it, come out yeah. and we were like oh wow you know talking about music on a podcast that's perfect you can actually listen to the music well because I, um, I had had the idea to do it as a blog and we realized that probably nobody wanted to read our writing about popular music but particularly because it would be hard to illustrate what we were talking about that if you could have an audio example it would explicate some right. of the things that might be a little bit more esoteric right i particularly was excited this one time you actually gave me your lecture while we were driving mm -hmm. playing carly ray jepson yeah but so you're asking why carly ray yeah out of all because that's a paradigmatic pop song and presents exactly the sort of challenge of pop, which is to say this song on the surface is really simple and fun and silly and it's something right. that's very easy to sort of reject out of hand right. as being sort of self-explanatory. You know, why why is that a good song? Because it's stupid and catchy and, and dumb. Well, I think know? that's what was part of when you first shared that song with me, 
I think there was a little bit of a conceit of exactly that. It's like, Charlie's not going to like this song because Charlie at the point had really different musical tastes. I did. Yeah. And uh, you put the song on. I was like, I don't know. Oh, interesting. I don't remember that. I must have rewritten some of this memory, but that's kind of the reaction you want someone to have. And then you say, no, wait a minute. Maybe once we start to unpack this, you'll appreciate it more for the craft of it. Right. And what were your expectations going into making a show that would deconstruct popular music using your musicological powers. I mean, we I think we talked about the idea of the show as kind of like a Trojan horse, right? That right. this was a way that pop music was sort of the sugar that made the medicine go down, <laughs> right, right, in which right. the medicine is like deep analysis and music theory. Right. And pop music is kind of like, no, no, this is okay. It's going to be okay. Right. This, this might taste bad, but it's good for you. Which I think says something about our expectations, which I think probably at the beginning of the show we weren't entirely honest about. Wait, so what, what, what do you mean? Well, maybe less expectations, but more some pre-existing biases that have probably shifted. And I'm wondering what are some of the things that you came into the show with that maybe have changed? There's two Trojan horses because... The show was meant to be a Trojan horse to deliver music theory through right. the guise of pop music. Right. But then there was sort of a reverse Trojan horse where we became lovers of pop music yeah. by <laughs> using music theory on it. Yeah. So I think it's safe to say that our evolution over the last how many years? Have it's we? Four year, four, four, over four years now. Wow, four years. Yeah. Has been seismic i mean right. i just since as long as i can remember i was just on an upward trajectory of being more and more sort of snobbish and discerning <laughs> right. and and narrow about my my musical tastes and and the more abstruse and difficult and unpleasant it was the more i wanted to be a part of it you know? <laughs> right 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 so that was in high school listening to jazz and in college listening to atonal you know, new music, the Darmstadt school, serialism, yeah. Bartok string quartet, whatever, yeah. whatever was, was most difficult. I wanted to be, a, yeah, I wanted that. So then what shifted? I'll start with the big payoff, which is entirely emotional. Like it's a better way of living. Like I'm, I'm <laughs> yeah. a better person. I'm a happier person. Yeah. I'm a more compassionate person. I'm a more open-minded person as a result of huh. letting pop into my life. Huh? So there were the I feel like those, I'm I'm in a like I'm shilling <laughs> drugs now or so this, pharmaceuticals. So, <laughs> so these judgments that you were holding on to about maybe you haven't even named them. What were some of the, the earlier right, yeah. conceptions about popular music? Okay, so I probably drew a certain moral corollary that there was mm -hmm. a direct line between music that is challenging and music that is good with a capital G as mm. in like good for you, good for society, good for the world. Right, right. And that conversely music that was simple, accessible and unchallenging was bad inherently. Which just, we'll have to even sort of maybe deconstruct because I, I think so much of our show has been showing that things are not as simple or unchallenging potentially as they right, seem. Right. Um, or popular, I guess, is another metric. Certainly, certainly right, right? right. You know, right, the more right. like that just seemed clear to me, and certainly as a result of, of reading a lot of Theodore Wiesengrund Adorno, <laughs> um, who, who I think subscribes to some of these notions. Yeah, the German philosopher. And then there's a whole other level to your musical taste, right? It's not right. just what you prefer and what you don't prefer. It's that there's actually these uh, your there's, taste there's, is laden with like 
ethical yeah there's more holistic implications to oh you listen to that (laughs) i see and that's probably i think when you brought carly ray to me i was kind of like oh this is not the guy who used to show up to college music classes wearing a tie this is something (laughs) has changed he's moved to california and he's wearing loose fitting shirts (laughs) oh man you know i was once walking down the street in these to my cousin Jake reminded me of this at our toast. These two girls walked by and and they were sort of like checking me out and I was really Good pleased. <laughs> and then I heard them say, Oh, that guy, he dresses just like my grandpa. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, Oh man. Oh, that's um, funny. So there was this moral you, you know, imperative to listen to challenging music. Right. And I think as a result of letting pop into my life, I've dropped those associations, certainly. And it seems like the things you were holding on to were maybe seeping over into Right, other... in, in my interpersonal relationships. Certainly, yeah. yeah. absolutely. And the way I thought about people, the way I judge... It's a very judgmental kind of mode right. to being, Right, certainly. Okay, that's the macro. Take me down to the micro. Okay, so James Joyce wrote three books, basically. And there's probably more written about james joyce than just about any other author right you know maybe besides shakespeare or something and in some ways that's like maybe a metric of how talented he is and how important those books are sure but in another way maybe it's a metric of how much those books present opportunities for analysis and interpretation it makes me think of chuck klosterman's book what if we're wrong? Okay. Which is all about what if we're wrong about our tastes and yeah. wrong about how things become canonized. And he points out that, for example, Moby Dick was an absolute failure in its day. And it only came back around because there was this sort of revitalization of the novel. And there was uh, a, a movement long past Melville's death, at which point people were like, oh, this is a great book. And in his analysis of canonization suggests that perhaps what becomes popular and canonized does so saying more about the culture of the time of canonization than it does about the actual work in its original form. That's fascinating and that's important, but that's not what I'm talking about. I went way to, yeah. <laughs> I guess what I'm trying to say is that the methods we have for analysis and interpretation sure are most robust and developed based on historically what we've privileged as the things worth analyzing. Uh, right. Does that make sense? It makes sense. I mean, I think you could probably relate that to your sector of academia. Yes. Right. Okay, so, so musicology right. with a capital M, yeah. How much of musicology focuses on, uh, traditionally has focused on a, a narrower set of composers. Yeah, yeah, no, right. I mean, I, you know, as a grad student, there was still a comprehensive exam that was entirely or mostly focused on the great Central European composers from the Renaissance to through the Romantic period. So, right. so yeah, there's certainly a geographical and, and temporal bias sure. in the discipline itself. And, you know, there's just been centuries of uh, Musikwissenschaft that's been... (laughs) That's like the German word for musicology, music science. Okay. What my advisor, David Josephson, likes to call (laughs) (laughs) Musikwissenschaft. And as a result, you know, that we have these incredibly uh, elaborate sort of formal tools for breaking down symphonies and string quartets and sonatas, right? Right. right? Right. We don't 
have very advanced tools for breaking down a pop song. And so a conclusion you can draw from that is, oh, that's because pop songs are comparatively simple and there's right. not a lot to say. Right. But maybe another conclusion you can draw is like, oh, maybe we no one's bothered to you know spend the time to think about how to analyze pop music and thus there's not this robust mechanism for doing so. Right, which of course is not to suggest that no one has bothered. There are no, no, incredible no, no. thinkers in this, but it certainly is a minority of the field of academic music writing. Yes, I would. I think that's fair to say, yeah. Yeah. So, okay, so we're in the micro. <laughs> right, okay, so now we're in the, so it's like, here's an interesting question. Like, what can you learn about Beethoven by listening to Carly Rae Jepsen, for yeah. instance? Right. Approaching popular music with this sort of tabula rasa approach of like, right. you know, what are the methods to use? What am I going to learn from this? Just having a completely open mind. Maybe you're going to come away with that from that experience, not only having more insights into Call Me Maybe, but maybe some insights that you could then go apply to other styles of music as well. Yeah, I think one of the big shifts in the way that I approach anything that I hear now, and I, I try to apply really to any art, is rather than approaching a work with my preconceived set of judgments, in particular taste, I like to think about what is the piece trying to say? Mm. What is the language that it's using to mm. say the thing it's trying to say? Yeah. Do I have any idea what that language is? If not, go learn it as much as I can. And then come back around and ask, hey, is the thing that it's trying to do doing it effectively using the language that it's using? Which is maybe <laughs> a little no, bit circular. No, I got you. Like, I got you. Is the work doing the thing that it's saying it's trying to do? And do I get it? And what I've found is that most of the time when I don't like something, it means I just don't get it. Right. Especially if it's a whole genre. If there's a whole body of kinds of work that I think is eh, like it's yeah. just off-putting, that usually is an indicator for me that I just don't get it. And I need to go get familiar with the work. I have to understand the language that it's using. And, and, and so when we talk about comparing contemporary popular music and seeing what we can learn about Beethoven, one of the sort of Pandora's boxes that we've been talking about more and more, maybe on our own and, and less on the show, has been about timbre. And, oh, yeah. Right? And yeah. so... When we think of timbre, timbre being the color of sound and the actual sort of texture of, of a sound, the available timbres for Beethoven were the symphony, mm -hmm. or the orchestra, rather. And sometimes he would extend the orchestra. There's one example of which he brought a musket into an orchestra. Beethoven? Yeah. What symphony is that? I'm going to have to go through my notes. I'm not sure you're thinking of, you're thinking of Franz Joseph Haydn, who has a rifle in, in the creation. Or no, in the season, sorry. Hold on a second. We're going to backtrack this. <laughs> There's a few examples of firearms. <laughs> There's certainly the cannons in Tchaikovsky's 1812 overture. I'm pretty sure the Beethoven movies. I'm not going to find it right now, but I, I was looking it up as I was writing something, so maybe I'm wrong. But in any case, yeah. the point being, the orchestra was limited. Yeah. And today, surprisingly, if you think about it, the orchestra also requires a huge amount of space. It takes place in a giant symphony hall, and now the way that people are creating music there's sort of an infinite number of samples and synthesizers available on each computer that can establish wholly new and original sounds. And so the quality of sound is all of a sudden privileged in contemporary music as opposed to melody and harmony and, and rhythm. Mm. These qualities are all also very important. But if we don't understand the language of timbre, 
um, it might scare us away. Yeah, no, that's that's a great example. And timbre is one of those things, right? The texture, the color, the sound of, of someone's voice. We have very limited vocabulary to describe that. And understandably, because the available sets of timbres are so broad today, and in fact, are way more complicated by the fact that they can be synthesized. Not long ago in history, a timbre would probably necessarily correlate to an instrument itself and its subtle variations between its types. Right. I, I might no. object. I think sure. th- there's a certain technological determinism in your argument there mm. in terms of the historical evolution of timbre. Because there's also, mm. there was a high intellectual demand for music that was just more interested in other elements like right. harmony sure. and form right. and counterpoint right? because of the sort of specific societal resonance that those qualities had in, right. Right. You know, right. in, right. in the post-Enlightenment era or whatever. Okay, so you've, you have learned things then <laughs> that we can take from Carly Rae Jepsen back to listening to other kinds of music. Yeah, absolutely, right? Timbre, the way uh, lyrics in music interact, certain properties of, of harmony and repetition, um, mm-hmm. and perhaps even more, yeah, fundamental concepts, like, you know, the idea of, of a key, for instance. This mm-hmm. is something, we, we haven't really gone into depth about this on the show, but we will someday. Yeah, sure, sure. <laughs> right, the idea, you know, via... And, and this is coming out of music theory literature by people like Mark Richards and Philip Tagg. Mm-hmm. But the idea that in classical music, it's all very predicated on things belong to one tonal harmony. That's why you have Mozart's Symphony Number no. 40 in G minor. Right. Like that is the key. And that's important, right? That right. is in G minor. That is the tonal home of that right. piece. That is something that is like such a given in the world of classical music. Right. Whereas we definitely do not have like Kendrick Lamar in D. <laughs> Kendrick Lamar's Wesley's theory in the key of, yeah. Um, no. And not only that, I mean, when we've dug into a song like Hello by Adele, maybe, mm-hmm. you know, we've talked about this. We, we maybe called it like harmonic ambiguity, I think. But there's like an even more fundamental question is like, what key is this piece in? Mm. Is it an A flat major or F minor? And the answer is it's there's no answer to that. It is both. It's like what Richards calls a double tonic complex, you know? It also maybe makes me think, are we asking the right questions? Is this really what we need to be looking for? And Well, well, well no, sorry, let me just finish sure. that thought. So that's what I'm saying is like that idea that tonal homes can be not just one note, but like multiple harmonic centers simultaneously that concept is something you could only come up with if you were listening to pop music really closely. Right. Could you just explicate that really quickly? Yeah. It's like, you know, you know the idea of a binary star, a syzygy? Whoa, I've always <laughs> wanted to use that word. No, what's a syzygy? A syzygy, like two stars orbiting around each other so closely that when you look at them with your naked eye, it just looks like one uh, star. Huh. That's kind of how Hello by Adele operates. Those two keys are constantly being exchanged as the possible tonal home of that song. Okay. Like revolving around each other. What key is it in? I believe it's in, well... <laughs> <laughs> what two keys is it in? I believe, if I'm remembering correctly, I think it's in A flat major slash F minor. Okay. And usually so, these will these will be keys related by... Right. As, as the, 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 that are the relative major and minors. Okay, so, so we could like play an A flat major yeah. and an F minor. Right. And you can kind of play them back and forth. Yeah, there's only one note difference between them. Yeah. And they just kind of merge as the song cycles through, which 
back to that episode fits the sort of textual meaning, which is this sort of in-between place where there's like remorse about a relationship and it's sad, but it's also reflective. So it's kind of happy. It's a happy, sad memory. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And so it makes sense that we're moving back and forth between this major and minor. Yeah. No, totally. Philip Tagg has another great example. That's a little older. The great gig in the sky off Pink Floyd's uh, Dark Side of the Moon. in high school <laughs> very obnoxious it's a great it's like it's another song that teaches you something about harmony or teaches you something that the 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 rules of tonal harmony is given to us by you know yeah by Mozart and Beethoven wouldn't which is that that song doesn't have any tonal home it moves from one loop of harmony to another there is no tonal base there hmm. well and, and I was interrupting earlier yeah. I was asking like so what so okay great <laughs> great question like why are we even why are we asking that question is actually an important precursor right right once you're not assuming that every song has one tonal home right that can change the way you think about the harmonic journey of any given song mm. it's less dualistic oh it's less mon, mon monodistic <laughs> no it is more there's two there's a double tonic so it's it is dualistic. Well, I think it's less dualistic in that it's not about a structure of home and away, arrival back to home, but rather a lot of contemporary pop requires us to sort of sit in more ambiguous harmonies. Yes. And okay. There we go. Okay. Yeah, I'm with you. The, the way of hearing a symphony is a teleological way of listening. Right, where you're listening for the end goal, and it's all about the journey from bum, bum, bum. from A to B. Yeah. You know. And popular music doesn't do that. It doesn't have that A to B aspect. Again, it's so fundamentally right. different. It just sits in this, you know, usually the repetition today of a four chord loop. We've seen it in almost every right. song we talk about these right. days. That's not like moving from point A to point B. That's more, it's just like, hey, <laughs> <laughs> you're just kind of chilling in that repetition. Well, an easy criticism is to say, well, it's simple, it's stupid, it's lazy. But back to what I was saying earlier about timbre, it's like most contemporary popular music just isn't privileging harmony as a language. And so in the same way that classical music doesn't privilege percussion in the orchestra, Mm -hmm. not only is it in the back, of course, so that it fits in the sound, but there are fewer musicians and it's just not as important to the music. Contemporary music is not privileging harmony in general. And is instead privileging percussion and rhythmic complexity and certainly timbral variety. Yeah. I just want to refine yeah. <laughs> a little bit of that. Of course you do. I mean, maybe it's fair to say that intense syncopation is a, a more the, yes. prime desideratum of contemporary pop. Yeah. And, and more drawn out harmonic progressions that take place over long periods of time. Right is not something that popular music privileges either. Generally not right now. And that's totally fine. And that's sort of back to the point of like, part of me asking this question of like, why does this question matter? Is that it's a leading question. Okay. No, but I have another answer too that that is a huge part of this, which is of course, 
to answer your question of why, it's like American popular music is inherently what the scholar George Lewis would call Afrological in nature, right? The sound of American popular music is the sound of African and African American music. Right. And that's not the case with the Central European right. hits of the, right. of the 19th and 18th century. And so I know I came into doing this project with you initially where the majority and of my so, formal training yeah. and where the majority of formal training in conservatory comes from a urological perspective. And so a lot of what I was trying to do early on in this show was like, how do I map on the things I learned about yeah. 18th century classical harmony? Because it kind of is like, you can map a lot of stuff onto it, mm -hmm. but because these musics do privilege such different qualities of music, I started to realize that I don't know if I was approaching it with the right set of questions because they were based in, an, in a whole set of assumptions and knowledge base Yes, that I probably when starting the show, saw as like a superior knowledge base. Right, which is the product of deep, long-standing racial associations with certain ways of music making and certain right. modes of analysis. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And let's, I should, we should be even more broad in acknowledging the influences of American popular music as it stands today. Not just African, oh, yeah. Afro-American, also Afro-Caribbean, Latinx, yeah. um, Asian. I mean, Hawaiian music is a, a huge part oh my gosh. of... Of, like all Polynesian, of course, the Polynesian. Anyway, I mean, you yeah, can keep going. Yeah, yeah. This is, is the beauty and the challenge of right. of hearing American popular music is it's the expression of a pluralistic nation, right? And with all the attendant beauty and complexity, and of course, all the attendant inequality and injustice that is latent in those histories. So, yeah, that's a good place for a brief pause, a moment of introspection, and to be crass advertisements calling all female runners it's time to lace up and join team milk since the 2022 new york city marathon team milk has sponsored female marathon runners nationwide providing support and shining a spotlight on their unique stories perseverance and drive to go the distance why milk dairy milk is an excellent nutritional ad for both marathon training and recovery Milk contains 13 essential nutrients, including high-quality protein, making it a crucial component of a training diet. Plus, it's one of the best beverages for hydration, even better than water. The same electrolytes that are added to many of your favorite sports drinks are found naturally in milk. And in 2024, Team Milk is taking the next step to empower female runners by launching the only women's marathon in the U.S. designed for and by women. Built to be accessible, empowering, and community building, the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Eurovision is here. This year's contest gets underway this week in Malmö, Sweden. But this year's contest comes with a dose of controversy. I'll give you one guess as to what people are mad about. Yes, correct. It's that. Organizers of the Eurovision Song Contest say they are assessing whether Israel's entry breaks the rules on political neutrality. I think it's a shame. I think there's no way 
that, that Israel should be able to participate in Pro-Palestinian protesters are taking to the Swedish streets. More than a thousand Swedish artists, including Robin, have called for an Israel ban. Some European politicians are joining them. Charlie Harding from Switched On Pop joins us this week on Today Explained to help us figure out if Europe can sing its way out of this situation. So I don't know if it's absurd to ask this then, based on what you were saying about the sort of hierarchies of musical tastes and analysis and how that's informed what is taken seriously. And I, I wonder if there is any sort of sense of restorative justice that you bring to your work as a musicologist and, and even in, to the podcast. I hesitate to adopt that term because I don't, sure. because it's more appealing in a way to just normalize these modes of listening to the point that you don't have to justify the idea of this non-hierarchical non-hierarchical listening right there's almost a sense of like if you're trying to prove it to the hierarchy you're still in a mindset of hierarchy yes yeah i suppose that is and that's i think that's a pitfall we fall into you know including in this discussion because yeah. we do there's a the tendency to say, well, to use Beethoven as a benchmark, say, right, you know, right. as a way of valorizing Carly right. Rae Jepsen, right, reinforces that sure. that hierarchy yeah. certainly, even if the aim is to raise one of those figures up, you know. Yeah, so, I, I feel like sometimes yeah. I feel like sometimes when I'm making those kinds of analogies, it's almost under the assumption that the person I'm speaking with might have that sense of hierarchy and I've kind of like already flattened it for myself, but it's my way of slowly tilting it. But I do agree that continuing to use those analogies yeah. is re it does reinforce. No, I, I think it presents a challenge for us to continue to find other benchmarks too. And especially yeah. non-Western benchmarks at the same time. I do there, I do, you know, Beethoven like Joyce there's, it has shaped the very the very way that we talk about music because his influence is so outsized, you know. So it can be productive sometimes to go back to those sources and think about, oh, what are we, you know, learning from Beethoven, and and I, how do we unlearn it? I sometimes just think of Beethoven as popular music. Can we let's let's throw on the finale of the Seventh Symphony right now. How many times it's do you a hear that? It's a straight-up carnival. It's all no, yeah. he, and he's and he was a revolutionary, right? Huh. He was he de famously dedicated the Third Symphony to Napoleon, <laughs> and then when Napoleon turned out to be a jerk, he literally crossed it no out. Way. Yeah. <laughs> but no, but, he was a radical. He was yeah. He was well, not. And I don't mean it just in their time, but also just say like there are some cultural reference points where it's like I have an assumption that people who went through public school education probably still had some music education and if they listen to one thing they probably heard the fifth symphony so for me the fifth symphony or the ninth symphony are just pop songs to me totally oh right. to joy is a straight-up pop song no doubt yeah so then maybe i should ask you something we've talked a lot about is our idea of what switched on pop has become and particularly the on pop piece of that mm. so for you how has your idea of pop music shifted 
Yeah. At this point, I think of pop sort of from a three-pronged definition or something. Fork or spork? Uh, we're talking spork. Spork gets all contained. Yeah, and I wanted I want to lap it up. You know? <laughs> One, you know, pop is music that is popular in the sense of you can measure using various metrics like how many people are listening to this music and right. whatever a lot of people are listening to is popular and it's right. so that's beyond any specific sound or stylistic properties it's just like if you can measure what people are listening to then whatever is the most popular is pop music right right okay so thing one pop is pop pop is pop <laughs> prong two is uh <laughs> is the sound of pop that pop does have a sound like right so it's changing but yes and that's some... what's we that's what's wild about pop is that it's right. it's literally it's morphs it's protean it, it changes right. yeah right like you if you if you threw on motown right right and then you that... put on like zed yeah they're both pop they couldn't be further from each other. Yeah. I mean, if you wanted to, we could have a lot of fun drawing no. the vectors that get us from one to the other. Yeah. So prong two is like pop as genre. Boundaries are constantly shifting, but it is a discrete genre unto itself that right. is separate from other styles. That is separate from jazz, hip hop, R and B, etc. Hmm. We well, we don't want to tumble down the the genre <laughs> rabbit hole, but yeah. 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 Okay. So okay. pop is genre, and then prong three, and then prong three is music that is this and this is a, this is more elusive but i think but music that has somehow seeped into some kind of collective conscience mm-hmm. conscious excuse me so even if we can't measure it that it's there what's a good like jingle bells is, is, is a good example sure. right or, or i think we had an amazing one something which is no longer pop yeah but was pop in the first prong but is still in the third prong of any millennial Oh, smooth. Smooth. A song that played forever and then disappeared, but has this sort of like cultural, like if someone played it, everyone would know it of a certain generation. Yeah. Maybe okay. This- so I see. Okay. So that's one. Okay. That definitely fits into prong three, the sort of ghosts of pop. Yeah. Maybe that's sort of nostalgic. But that's not, I yeah. don't know, because that is prong one. Sure. That was sure. a huge, that was. You're right. Right. A okay. Crazy pot. What about songs like Jingle Bells? Yeah. Songs or the like national anthem, which we've talked about. On the, the national show. anthem, or and then there's others like what, like you know, the Nokia cell phone ring would right. probably we fit talked, in, this, about, in yeah. this uh category. It makes me realize that the music which fits in this category are like old patriotic anthems, <laughs> which says a lot about the role of music and contemporary nationalism, which is that it's actually, except for the national anthem, not that important. Right, like right. there used to be a lot of nationalist sort of anthems and patriotic anthems that are just not as big a part of music making, and so our shared language tends to be popular music, tends to be things which are popular, and they get played at the Super Bowl, they get played at political rallies, they get played yeah. at these, these sort of things have merged. But then we have jingles, and I don't know. There's probably I imagine listeners probably have some really interesting ideas of other ways that music right. seeps into our life, but it's not top 40 radio yeah i mean certainly and in the age of like online virality there's probably right, right. a lot of examples of this too well and what was that album that just came out on instagram tierra whack yeah 
the album that was like 15 songs. Each song is one minute. It can mm. be posted to be an Instagram video, which has a one minute constraint. And yeah. and a lot of people are saying, "Hey, this is this is you know this is an album." Yeah. And it's huh. just different distribution points. It's still music. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's Tierra Whack, and that's that's a really yeah. No, I think that's a good example. It might not be top of the charts, but it's part of some collective conscious right. which is to say of course like the charts of commercial viability don't necessarily reflect what's happening culturally they are not necessarily exhaustive yeah yeah I see. yeah right right okay so i asked you <laughs> <laughs> of the switched on pop how has the idea of pop changed for you and i'm hearing a you have a sort of much wider set of definition than you probably had in the past, which was probably more focused just on which part of it, the genre of pop. Uh, yeah. The, the first two, I guess yeah. the sheer popularity being inherently canceling out that yeah. whatever merit that mu- music yeah. might have. Yeah. And, and, and I, and I've definitely observed that your, your musical tastes have changed. You still listen to plenty of jazz and, and get great enjoyment from it mm-hmm. as, as do I, um, but you are bound to throw on pop radio and have oh. a good time. Oh, it's no, it's it's totally and this comes back to like the pharmaceutical aspect of it. Like it's a better world when you open your ears to the sounds around you. Or let me put it another way. Like, you know the expression don't judge someone before you walk a mile in their shoes? Sure. Like, don't judge someone until you've heard an hour in their ears <laughs> or something. Do you know what I mean? Like right. I'll have to fine tune right. that, but right. okay. Cause music is not just sounds as we've just been discussing, right? right? Music is community. Music is, is a set of values. Music is a way of, of being in the world. And so often when we shut ourselves off to other kinds of music, we're really shutting ourselves off to other groups, identities, right. ways of engaging. Right. When you listen to other music, one our, our episode about One Direction is, is right. a, a crystalline example right. of this for me because that was such a voyage. Right. From the beginning of that episode, just being like, I don't need to listen to this music. It's trash. I know that. It, or even it's it's not for me. Right? It's not I, for I think, me. I think I sort yeah. of came in with being like, well, that's that's for like... Okay, right. Yeah, you were maybe, you were a little more generous than I was. Even. Uh, yeah, You're like, this might not be bad, but it's not for me. No, I wasn't generous though. <laughs> and then at the end of it, it's not to say that our conclusion was, oh, this is music for me. I listen to One Direction every morning when I wake up now. You know, <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah. it's like, but I understand why people listen to One Direction and what they get out of it. But it's and, not just understanding, because you actually, I observe, you have more joy. Yes, no, like, no, right. totally, totally. I genuinely enjoy it. And then pick another totally different example that's like death metal or something. Right. You know, another genre that you might be like, whoa, that's not for me. Right. And then, and again, I don't listen to death metal every morning. Right. But now I get it, I enjoy it, and I understand why people listen to it and what they get out of it and that makes me not only understand the music it makes me understand people in a much mm. deeper way mm. it's like it's empathetic listening you know it's like yeah i, go I don't know if you are citing this influence we've maybe talked about once or twice on the show this really important book which was carl carl wilson's book let's yes. talk let's talk about love yeah which is a, an analysis of the culture of taste around Celine Dion. Yeah. And it was one of the most influential books I've ever read in my thinking about music because it really is about the deconstructing taste as a 
role in mostly just reinforcing class structures more than anything else. Yeah. And it was a beautiful book. And so I know we, we both you know share having read this, but I also I don't think that we are on this journey uniquely together with our listeners. I sort of get the sense that there is a shift mm. in the cultural relationship to popular music, certainly through a whole history, uh, a decade's worth or more of poptimist writing. But I wonder, do you think the way in which we are listening to music and what is available to us and its ubiquity, what what's shifting? What's changed? Has something changed? Yes. To answer your question, I agree. There is a sea change in the way pop music is now seen to be symptomatic or even generative of the world we live in. So hmm. that probably wasn't the case, you know, in the era of Patty Page, how much is that doggy in the window? Like uh I mean to uh, to say that pop music was just, you know, what the kids are listening to, those crazy kids, like it doesn't have any meaning in our world. Is is that mapping on to just technological ubiquity of culture and mass media? Like, are you saying that, like, in early Braille building, pop music, in the beginning of the 20th century, that it just, it simply wasn't as ubiquitous in people's ears and identity because it didn't have the same kind of reach? That's It's a great question. I don't know. We'd have to, I'd, I'd love to know what, what listeners think. I think it has a lot to do with the internet and sure. the voices that weren't necessarily being heard that mm. have a lot of the voices of women, queer people, people of color that weren't always being represented in the mainstream music magazines and music press mm. suddenly being able to say, no, this music has a lot of meaning for me in my world. Mm. And that ramified outward back into those music journals who I think inspired by the incredible engagement takeaways fandom of people online were like oh this is a different way of listening to pop music where you pop music reflects and shapes the world we live in and we need to pay it its due in that respect yes absolutely i have more and more people in my life who are just musically omnivorous and hmm. on a basic level we'll go to a pandora station and listen to classical while they're studying jazz when they need to focus even further but then they'll switch to like some down tempo hip-hop beats when they're feeling in a different mode of studying and those are all different just study music and then are happy to listen to electronic dance music throwback house 90s music house music and they're kind of like just moving between genre simply because it's a click away and people have curated all this stuff it's immediately available i owned like 40 cds when i was a teenager and that was <laughs> A lot because they were expensive and I they were much more important to my identity but I was also a teenager right but it's not just the availability and generic blurring that has given rise to what you know some people have called the poptimist revolution sure, sure. or whatever I think it's a recognition that the way we think about race gender sexuality politics class mm. is filtered through the music we listen to so right. It's not incidental to our lives right. and to our uh, society. It is imbricated. Yeah, I, I think I missed that important connection <laughs> and what you were saying earlier. Yeah, um, I, or, or I didn't. I didn't say it well, but yeah. 
so no matter what your taste, you better be interested because this stuff matters. It, ma- <laughs> it matters to what's happening in your world. Like if you're ravenously reading political blogs because yeah. they matter, you better be ravenously listening to pop music because it too is having significant cultural weight and emotional cues on the ways that we are performing our identities in the yeah. world. No, okay, so Charlie, now and here's I'm going to turn that around sure. on us. Yeah, sort of use this 100 episode as also, yeah. a, you know, a state of the pop union. Yeah, I think moving forward, it behooves us. I totally agree with what you just said. That is, listening to pop music is a way to understand people, right? Yeah. Um, but and that's not just true of pop. That's true of country. That's true of Christian rock. That's mm-hmm. true of reggaeton. Yeah. That's true of all I'm mean, I, I won't keep going. You get it. There's yeah. like so many it, while it's true that maybe our taste is more omnivorous, there's also more subgenres than ever. Mm. And in order to really understand where people are coming from, it behooves us to listen, to really dig into those. Mm. Just the, the way mm. we did with One Direction, yeah. Yeah. to drop our biases, to approach these different styles with open ears and see what we learn on the other end by mm. from listening to them, you know? Mm. I, so one of the things I'm hearing from you and that you're leading to is, and I want I wanted to ask you about where do we want to take the show? Yeah, and we're going to have some really exciting announcements coming very soon about, and the show's going to I think has a, a a big life ahead of itself. With yeah, I'll just leave it at that. There's going to be some really exciting things coming forward, but I, I'm, I'm interested not so much in sort of where we're distributing and and uh, how frequently, but rather the questions that we're asking and how we're asking them. What's exciting you for past episode 100? I think what's exciting me is bringing in more and more voices to be guests on the show. And, Absolutely. And to recognize you know, the limitations of our backgrounds and, and our ability. I mean, concomitant with everything we've been talking about, yeah. like, you know, our ability to hear is limited by who we are and what right. we're exposed to in our biases and, and so on. So the more people we can bring in to help break down music with us, I think the more we're going to learn and, and the people listening are going to learn. Yeah. Um, I think asking questions, so you asked, but you asked what, what questions do we want to ask? Um, what, what are you curious about? This conversation has been largely reflective and yeah. I'm curious about looking forward into the things that, I mean, as an academic, maybe you are want to feel like you have some solidity in your knowledge base and you are working through ideas that you have some fluency in. What are the questions which feel more uncertain but are intellectually intriguing that you, and culturally and personally and, yeah, that you want to... One one that's into. come up uh, a lot in on our show and in the classes I've taught this year, yeah, I think is a question about the sort of obligation of music to be politically and socially engaged. Yeah, what are the politics of pop in that sense? And this is something, yeah, that I think we that people are discussing a lot, and we and I'd I'd like to think about it too, and and to do so in a way that is particularly, you know, as everything we do through privileging the music first i guess um is like what do artists owe and what does a song owe to the world in terms of its moral message its engagement with issues of the day yeah that's something i don't know there's no answer to that i want to keep thinking about it there's one that i've really just started to unpack that i'm really excited to approach more which is this idea of psychological distancing and the way in which 
so much popular music does create cues of what is culturally acceptable, mm. there are also things undeniably that happen in popular culture which lead to the most toxic parts of our culture. Certainly issues of, of sexism and racism and all anything that has an ism at the end of it. I don't mean to diminish any of them, but they are all present in popular music. Yeah, and I, I know that I feel as though there have been times where I'm like, I'm just not going to cover a song because I really don't like the message that that thing is saying. And so I filter it out of what ends up on the show. And I don't think that that's the right approach because so often you'll still see a thousand people on a dance floor singing lyrics, which I think that if you just said aloud in public or if like you were on television and you said aloud, you would be fired from your job immediately and banished from society. Mm-hmm. What I'm really curious about is how is it that in popular music, we do have all sorts of representation issues that persist and are in the lyrics of our favorite songs that I think in visual mediums and other art forms, there's been more dialogue on. And I'm really particularly interested in how do we exist in the cognitive dissonance of maybe holding a certain set of values and then the art that we consume does not fulfill those values and yet we like enjoy it while dancing with our friends and the happiest moments well that's a great question and it's a question that is somewhat unique to music because what you just said speaking the lyrics of a song out loud in different contexts radically changes them right why is that it's because music does something to us it does the sound of a song changes our relationship to those words right. is that good or bad you know that's well, hard to say which is i asked you at the beginning of this conversation about what are some of the sort of pre-existing biases that we brought into the show that we've unpacked and one of them which we don't name often is that i know that for both of us we never listen to lyrics first i don't know if it's musical training or if it's just some sort of way of listening and i, I know when i i ask people this question always like when you hear music what is the first thing that you notice And for a lot of people, it may be lyrics. For a lot of people, it's groove. Um, I probably tend to hear harmony and rhythm a lot. Uh, I listen a lot to harmony. Um, Some people are just totally tuned into a melody and can hum the melody. But embarrassingly, when we had to perform at our friend's wedding, we couldn't memorize two verses of a song because we're just not lyrically driven. And I think that actually says something about the art form itself. Like you actually don't need to listen to lyrics to be having a great time. There is so much happening. And so it's very easy to distance or just have no relationship to them. I rarely have a relationship to them. And so I think it totally supports your point that it is a sort of false notion to say that lyrics removed completely from themselves would actually show their true meaning. They don't necessarily. No, I totally agree. Other other things that you're interested in pursuing? You know, I'm interested in that third prong we <laughs> identified earlier, yeah. which is to recognize that top 40 pop might represent what is being statistically, you know, most bought, streamed, spun, etc. Right. But that it doesn't represent the totality of what is pop music. Yeah, yeah. And so continue to explore country music, which we have so much to learn about. Yeah. A lot of Latinx musical traditions that we have so much to learn about. We've talked about, you know, African music a few times on this show as becoming, uh, you know, an increasing element in American pop music. Like, we... 
we, we have been so neglectful of covering k-pop and j-pop K-pop. And, oh my, oh my god right. i know i know we're ugh. so we uh, it's something i'm really thrilled about as well i yeah. really want to widen this idea of what is switched on pop and some of the earlier notions i think when we first started the show of let's do the thing where we take the trojan horse of pop music and teach music through it is not at all where I'm at right now. Mm. I'm excited to have conversations about what is the music which surrounds our life? Why is it there? What is it doing to us? And I think there's just so many different genres, subgenres, and questions and artists that we can work with that that are not necessarily just the things that are in the top 40. Amen. I had another question that came up that I'm interested to peruse with you over many more episodes. As I was talking about this idea of being able to listen omnivorously, having access to listening to everything, I am really interested to go deeper into the cultural implications of music production and music listening. How can we be ethical music producers? How can we be ethical listeners when we may be borrowing our joy from cultures we do not belong to are you talking about cultural appropriation yeah i know but and and so particularly i'm curious about how does that apply as a listener how do we think about what we're listening to what we are bringing into our lives i don't know what to do with this question because i think i really need to think on it more and spend time talking with people who have thought about it more but i think that there are social political implications to wide access to consumption are there ethical boundaries to our consumption even if we have access even though we have access does that mean we have permission yeah that's a great question <laughs> thanks <laughs> um, and on that i mean to, to what you said i think i think we i'm really excited to bring more people into the show when we started doing this together it was largely because i wanted to keep having a long distance musical friendship when you were moving to new york and i was in la we didn't even talk about on the show for a long time. We wanted to trick people that it sounded like we were in the same room and we edited really tightly to make it sound as if we were together. But mm. it, largely, I just I wanted to be able to hang out every week and it was really fun. And we got really lucky and a lot of people wanted to join the conversation. And in that, there are issues of representation. I want to make sure that we're not just representing our views on music. And I think we've been able to bring on some guests who have really widened everybody's perspective. And I'm excited to bring in more guests, guest hosts, I want to let people take over the show if they want to take over the show. I feel zero attachment and power to this microphone. I definitely want to share this microphone a lot more. One thing that does come to mind for me is that even in booking, I've realized that the people who are available because press agents are saying, hey, you should have this person on your show are not always the people that we need to have on the show, which is not the only way we go about it, but which is to say that there have been times where I've realized, oh, we really haven't been as representative as I would like to be in who we're bringing onto our show because the reality is it takes way more active outreach. And I'm excited to commit to doing um, outreach to um, people whose voices have not been represented enough on the show. So that's something that I, I really want to bring together in our in our next batch of episodes. I second that. And I'll just add that along with that, I'm excited to continue to use and respond to the ideas and feedback we get from people who listen to the show oh my gosh it's so wonderful because like you said that was something we could have never anticipated when it was just you and me uh and before anyone listened i guess we had a Um, year of just having fun and you know it's been 
absolutely the most incredible part of doing this show is to get ideas, comments, criticism from, you know, just ridiculously smart and like crazy diverse people who listen to this show and turn us on to new music and new ways of thinking and sometimes write like essays you know yeah. to us that we're just reading like with our jaws on the floor because it's so insightful i often don't know how to respond and sometimes i take way too long to do so because the comments are so thoughtful and just yeah smart already the show has improved a hundredfold from those listener comments and yeah i'm i'm just excited to continue to assimilate those into what we do and make this the expression, the show is an expression of a larger community of people thinking about pop music and not just our, from our domes to, to our mouths and out into the world. Right on. I'm with you. I have one more thing that I want to bring into the show in the, in the coming episodes. Lots more fun music, lots more having fun, hanging out, having a great time because we are talking about pop music and as much fun as it is to get super wonky, I also really enjoy the amount of joy that it brings. Better living through pop. I it's the, <laughs> it's literally the cheapest drug you can You're you going to start using that Dr. Sloan and start peddling a bunch of snake oil, aren't you? No, I'm not cuz I'm I have nothing to gain. I simply turn on the radio and feel better. Yeah. It's free medicine. It's a beautiful thing. This episode of Switched on Pop is produced by me, Charlie Harding. And me, Nate Sloan. Our mixing and engineering is all done by Bill Lance. Our design is Luke Harris. And our fantastic community manager is Sarah Terry. And because it's our 100th episode, I feel like we have been actually neglectful to thank the most important people, which are mm. our partners, your partner, Whitney Graham, and my partner, Bess Kalb, who have been just overwhelmingly supportive of us making this show from when it was a fledgling idea that took lots of time to when it has grown and have just been incredible supporters of the yeah. show and have improved our ideas throughout no i mean right we could have every credit could be you know edited <laughs> by <laughs> whitney graham and bescal because yeah. every single we idea we have is filtered through their yeah. brilliant minds and ears so yeah Thank that's you. well thanks i'm yeah we're gonna be back again in two weeks as always and um you know we're gonna keep doing this past 100 episodes thank you all for being with us thanks for listening thanks for listening <laughs>